uh, what do we know about the minor prophets? What's the difference between a minor and a major prophet? The third, you have the third down a half step. <laughs> that sounds like a, a Jeff Buckley line, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, singing hallelujah. Uh, well, we just know that they just say it in a short amount of time. There's long-winded preachers, and then there's minor prophets who get to the point. Well, we're going to talk about Amos tonight, uh, and um, there's some good stuff that you just need to know, and what I'd love is for um, kids, you to come up with one question that you ask your parents on the way home from church tonight. Maybe when you're, you're lying in bed tonight and you go, hey, Pastor Dave was talking about this, but what about this? And then your parents have to like pay attention so that they can actually answer you, okay? So we want to take some notes. We want to learn about the minor prophets because they all had something really, really profound to say. But before I get there, I want to talk about a story that happened. And the story happened this year, April 15th. It was, it was tax day in America, but it was a terrible day, a worser day in France. Do you remember what happened on April 15th of 2019 at 6.18 in the evening? Nicholas. Well, the Notre Dame Cathedral caught on fire. Good memory. Did you write a report on it? Did you write a report on current events? Okay. Well, Notre Dame, I'm going to sound like a Yankee. Notre Dame, uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral uh, is 850 years old. It's from the Middle Ages. It's been there for a long, long time, and people get so used to it being there. And the thing about it is, is that it, it was set up, and it had all of these things. And when the fire broke out, it was in the upper attic. So it's got this long way with these timbers. And, and they didn't want to destroy any of the timbers or the original architecture, so they didn't want to install any sprinkler system. So if there's a fire, there's going to be a sprinkler system. But because it was so old from the Middle Ages, they didn't want to do anything to it. But when they first radioed in, and they had all of the security, they had all of this detection, they had all of the smoke detectors, they had all the personnel, they had everything in place. And they first noticed something, and they called it in, and the guy who was standing there, and there was a, a, a mass uh, going on at the time, the little guy hears in his piece, and he goes, oh, well, I better go check on it. He goes to the wrong part. He goes to what's called the sacristy, and, and he goes to the wrong building. He goes, don't smell any smoke here. And so he just goes back, business as usual. 30 minutes later, they realize smoke's coming out of what they call the timber. It was, it was, it, it was the, or what they call the forestry because it had all the timbers going up in the attic. So they call it and it took 30 minutes for the, for, from the first alarm bell to the, to the time that the, that the firefighters had gone there. Well, smoke became a small spark, became a small flame, and now it was engulfed. There's 300 stairs up a small medieval staircase to get to the attic. By the time the firefighters got there, they couldn't, they couldn't get in. They couldn't get up there. And so it just started burning. And they're looking around. No one was prepared for this. The first hour could simply be defined by, by um, a delayed response. No one, even though they had all the systems in place, no one responded in a timely way. The second hour of the fire could be defined as helplessness. What do we do now? 
this thing that's been there forever, that we sort of have stood the test of time, is now burning before our eyes, and we don't know what to do. So they, they decide to cut their losses. They said, there's no way we can get the attic out, the, 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 the part that they called the forestry. And so they go for the towers and they didn't want the fire to spread to the towers. And the towers had a system of bells in it. And they thought if the fire spread, those bells would begin to fall like boulders and start to destroy parts of the underneath the foundation. And then the whole thing would begin to collapse. And so they concentrated all their efforts saying, we can't save that, but maybe we could save this. And that's what they were able to save. The towers. But while other parts are ruined. Well, now everyone's doing the investigation work. And what are they doing whenever something terrible happens? They start trying to figure out who's to blame. And they're talking about, oh, faulty wiring. They're talking about this elaborate system that no one knew how to read the warning signs. They're talking about people who um, maybe were, were asleep at the wheel. In fact, the one guy who was on watch had only been hired three days before, and the guy that was supposed to replace him hadn't shown up. So now he's like 12 hours into a shift, and he just wasn't super alert. They were even talking about, well, there was some workers up there the week before, and we found cigarette butts. So maybe it was them. And who can we blame for all this? But the bottom line is this. There was this lack of responsiveness, and they were just completely complacent. They weren't prepared for anything like this. They thought they had all the things in place, but when the fire broke out, they weren't prepared. I think that is such a super important image for what our spiritual lives look like. Because we can say we believe that God is all of these things, but when tragedy occurs, when crisis happens, when doubt happens, when disappointment happens, we have to feel like we're still prepared and nowhere to go for truth, for hope, for support, for fellowship, so that we're not just left to be burned to the rubble spiritually speaking. Really important stuff for us to consider. And so the question is, this is what God's Spirit and the prophets have done for us, is that when these interruptions occur in our life, and I use the term interruptions because it could be tragedy or it could be crisis, uh, there's lots of things that interrupt us. It could be our legalism or it could be our apathy. It could, be, um, it could be our doubts, it could be our ignorance, it could be our struggle, but we're always invited to respond to God's revelation. And it's important to hear, I don't believe that God intends for everything to happen. God's not mad at you letting bad things happen, but I do believe that God is redeeming all things, or he can I think we might not ever want to go through certain things again, but we can see how God lived and moved and worked. And sometimes it's easy to ask, where is God when this is happening? And I would simply say, right next to you, brokenhearted, grieving like you're grieving, because this is not the world that God intended. This is the world that God created, but he never intended for there to be this broken humanity. Uh, he didn't intend for tragedy and crisis and all of these kinds of things. He, in, he intended there to be paradise, and that's not what we had. So the question that I'm asking today is, what will it take for our hearts to be sensitive to God's spirit? 
What will it take for our hearts to begin to break or maybe to grieve for what breaks and grieves God's heart? What will it take for us to respond and draw near to be a part of God's solution when needs arise? This is super important because it gets really easy to get really comfortable. It gets really easy to be really complacent. And then when the storms are happening or when the fire breaks out, we're not left complacent and unprepared. That's the thing. They had fire systems. They had electronics. They had all the things in place. They're like, this is a gem and a jewel. And it's, it's so much a part of our history and our identity. And now it just is up in flames and we can't do anything about it. And I think the same thing about faith. Everyone would say, I really believe that God's real. I believe these things. And I'm saying, okay, but when push comes to shove, are you prepared to seek God when it gets really, really hard? And so in Amos, we have this unusual person. And the reason why Amos is unusual is this. Amos is in Judah. We have the split of the kingdom of Israel. There's the northern kingdom still called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. He's from a town of Tekoa. Tekoa, you know what he is? He's not an important person. He's not a popular person. He's a fig farmer and a shepherd. This is like someone who's beneath working class. He's living enough to feed himself and his family, but he sees what's going on in the northern kingdom, and he identifies with them as fellow Jews, and he understands their identity in light of who God is. And he's like, someone's got to stop this. And so he goes up to Bethel. And Bethel was this town, sort of like Jerusalem, but it's like Jerusalem light. It had a big temple. It just wasn't quite as populous. But he walks into the temple, and he starts announcing all of this stuff. And here's where it's interesting. Um, It's not a long, long book like some of the other ones. Um, But in chapter one, if you read it, it's a little confusing, but you read it, and he names every other of the surrounding nations besides Israel. And then chapter two, and he, and he basically indicts them. Here's what all the nations are doing. Here's all the greed. Here's all the evil. Here's all the things that are grievous to God. You need to know what breaks God's heart. Then it's almost like he zeroes in. Think about if you held up a rifle and the scope that you saw and the crosshairs in between, he zeroes in on Israel. So chapter one through the first part of chapter two is all about the surrounding nation. And then the the second half of chapter two, he zeroes in and he takes aim at Israel. And he just begins to unload on what Israel's doing. And what had happened in Israel is that they had achieved, and we heard some of this when we looked at Hosea, but they had achieved this military and political success so that it created a sense of prosperity around them. Oh, because when you conquer other people, you get to take the spoils home with you. You get richer when you conquer people. You get servants, and you get loot, and treasure, and jewels, and you get livestock, and all of a sudden, you get kind of prosperous and complacent. What does complacency do? It kind of dulls our sensitivity. When we get really prosperous, we don't think we need God quite as much. And this is what's happened to the Israelites. It's still Jeroboam II, who's one of the worst kings of ever in Israel's history. But the people had gotten so, and they started neglecting the poor. In fact, what was worse is that they were, they were worshiping other gods, but they were neglecting the poor. And then 
the poor were getting sold into debt slavery. So if you were trying to make a living and you couldn't pay for it, you basically signed off and said, I'll become your servant. But then these people were going to debtor's prison with no legal representation, their own people. Why is this so, you think, oh, that's terrible. No, it's worse because if you know the history of Israel, they were once slaves and God delivered them out of slavery. And now they've become the thing that, you know, their enemies did to them. And so here comes Amos, a fig farmer and a shepherd. You know, when you're a shepherd, you have no social skills. A shepherd talks to himself. A shepherd sings to the sheep. A, a shepherd knows how to defend himself because he's, you know, taken on wild animals, but he's not going to be at the top of the social status, uh, socially sophisticated. And here he is called to just call people out on this. And this is the picture. And he says this in Amos 2, verse 6 and 7. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. I will not let them go unpunished. They, listen, they sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of their way. Okay, if you're like me, it's very easy to look around and say, our world has never been worse than it is today. Except that when you read scripture, you realize there was awful, awful, awful stuff going on back then. And so imagine having fellow Americans. Imagine having people who live right in the neighborhood of, of, of Northwest Hills, other Austinites, and we're like, no, um, I'm going to sell you for a pair of sandals. No, you're going to prison and where you have no way to make it out, but you owe me and you're going to go to jail. And you're like, is this a picture of you being a light to the nations? Are you living into your God-given identity and purpose? And Amos is like, you've forgotten who you are in light of who God is. And oh, by the way, you're starting to look like all the nations around him who don't know our God. And so what Amos does, like holding up a mirror, he starts to reflect back. He says, you've become the oppressors. You were once slaves, now you're the slave owners. This is what I like to call, and see if you can just stick with me on this, functional atheism. Think about that term. No one here would say, I'm an atheist. And an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God. An agnostic believes that there's a supreme being, but wouldn't acknowledge what that supreme being is. That's the difference between agnosticism and atheism. But listen to what I'm saying is, a lot of times Christians function as functional atheists. What do I mean by that? It's that we say we believe that God is this way, but we live our lives with no action. We believe that God has blessed us, that God has provided with, for us, that God has cared for us, except that we don't actually trust God with our finances. Well, because there just might not be enough at the end, except that you said it all comes from God. So that becomes functional atheism. We say we believe, but it affects nothing in how we live. And what he's saying here is, if you know God, you've had a life-changing, course-correcting experience with God, and you can't unlearn what you've learned. You can't unexperience what you've experienced. You can't unsee what you've seen. If you've seen God heal, if you've seen God provide, if you've felt God give strength, 
That's part of your testimony. That's part of how God's revelation has been made known to you. Don't act like you don't know God. And so functional atheism is saying, yeah, I believe um, God is my strength. I believe that God provides, but I never take a day off. Okay, but we're called to a Sabbath kind of rhythm. We're called to live into this other kind of way. Uh, we have to understand the things we say are true about God have to start to shape the way we live our lives. And he's saying, you people are going around saying, we believe in God. He delivered us. He's been faithful to us, except you're not living that way yourselves. And this is what's got him so, that he left the fig farms like, I got to go pick a fight with these people. I've got to, someone's got to say something. Something's got to be done. And he's really calling them out on injustice. The wealthy people are starting to neglect the poor. And he's like, people, we've always been a poor country. We've always been poor and God has provided for us. So why are you not providing for the poor among you? he's mad. So we talked last week about what it means to know. And knowledge isn't just an intellectual gathering of facts. Knowledge is a shared experience. Oh, we're in community. We know each other. We have a history together. And there's something that we've done to come alongside. There's something that God has revealed through us, through our, our gathering together. There's something about knowing. Like, I know Bono except Bono doesn't know me. I'd pick out Trump on the street, but Trump doesn't know me. There's famous people that I know, but I don't know. I know who they are, but they don't know me. That's not what we're talking about here, and that's not what I'm talking about with God. Once you know God in a personal way, it's supposed to create this life-changing, transformational experience. And so here's what he says. He challenges their, their relationship with God and their response to God's revelation. This is in um, chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Listen to what he says. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Does a lion ever roar in the thicket without first finding a victim? Does a young lion growl in its den without first catching its prey? Does a bird ever get caught in a trap that has no bait? Does a trap spring shut when there's nothing to catch? When a, the ram's horn blows a warning, shouldn't the people be alarmed? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? Indeed, the sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, so who isn't frightened? The sovereign Lord has spoken, so who can refuse to proclaim the image? There is this invitation for us to turn, and it means when we talk about repentance, what we're talking about is simply aligning our lives with God's, so that the things that break God's heart, the things that make God mad, are the things that upset us as well. That's an important thing, especially in our world where we have, uh, and, and by the way, I know that you can, righteousness comes when people who have needs are, are, are actually met. Their needs are different than yours, but it's important that there's not this growing disparity. So that needs to inform our politics. 
whether it be about an immigration policy or whether it be about healthcare reform, it has to inform how we respond to God's care for all creation. We as Americans are more prosperous than anyone, but it doesn't make us more loved. It actually makes us more responsible. So nationalism is terribly ungodly. Nationalism, this America first, is super dangerous when it comes to the least of these. God's sending prophets throughout the ages because people who have are forgetting or not meeting the needs of people who don't have. And, and, and it's unacceptable. And so can we make a global difference? Nope. Can we love our neighbor? Yep. Problem is that the neighbors on my street, you know, maybe have problems with prescription drugs or um, overindulgence or, you know, high-functioning addictions. Um, they, they don't need English language help. They, they don't need clothing. They don't need food from me. So, but there are people in Austin that need those kinds of things. And so how are we as a church responding to those kinds of needs among many, many others? Some people just need to have what we have here in terms of a community that offers support and encouragement and someone to call them by name. Other people need us to help with, you know, college education or, or something like that. But this is what he's talking about. And so he gets down to these accusations of idols. And there was, it's interesting because what they had accepted, they had still been worshiping God, except because they'd conquered all these nations, they took on the influences, the, the worship of the other idols from the other nations. Because what you have to understand is back in those days, there was um, local deities. Every nation had their own God. And so it, that's why you often hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Well, that was sort of a geographic reference to he's our God because you've got your God. But God's revealing himself, no, this is the heart for all of my creation. And so he's making a statement about that. And what they'd done in conquering other nations is take, so what did they have? They had gods of weather. Why? Because they're agriculture people. They had gods of sex because they had fertility gods in these other countries. Uh, they had gods of war that had been really on their side because they had been winning their battles in addition to God. And he's like, you've taken in all of these idols. And the problem with all of these other gods is that the worship of these other gods doesn't require any justice. In fact, it actually leads to neglect and injustice. In other words, worship of God is always going to be synonymous with generosity, with righteousness, with compassion, with mercy, with loving our neighbor as ourself. That's always what the picture of worship with God looks like, and they were doing none of it. I had a conversation this week that gained some traction. I shared this at our tribe meeting, and the conversation was something like this, and I think this is an important thing for us to just to consider, and it's the difference between tolerance and grace. 
It's a kind of a confusing thing, but you hear a lot of terms of being intolerant. Well, I think the people who accuse you of being intolerant are being intolerant by nature uh, because somehow they're not tolerating something. And, and I would say that God that we're talking about is not a tolerant God, and I'm so thankful for it because there are things in this world that I don't want God to be okay with. I don't want God to be okay or to tolerate injustice and abuse. I don't want God to tolerate famine because the famine is always a result of greed, not supply. Humans have already botched that up. It's always the case when it comes to famine. There is so much in this world that God does not tolerate. So when we're invited to become tolerant people, you have to understand that's not always a loving response grace, what God does is invite us to deeper levels of participation, harder conversations without the conversations ever being cut off and terminal, without it ever saying there's no hope for you in eternity. There is this invitation that we have to participate with God on the deepest levels, like a heavenly father taking a spiritual child and saying, I am grieved by you, I am angry with you, but I'm ready to forgive you. This is what grace looks like. And it's really confrontational, but it doesn't have to be terminal. Do you see what I'm saying? A lot of times we think of, if we get in a confrontation, it's going to burn the bridge and that's over and we just retreat to our separate corners, no relationship anymore. And I'm like, grace allows us to go to the mat together, have the deep, hard, difficult conversation, repair, reconcile the misunderstandings. This is what God does to us. And so he's parenting us as sort of maybe strong-willed, maybe rebellious children. And he's saying, listen, I'm not cutting you off. I'm inviting you. I've put prophets in front of you to say, whoa, you're getting complacent. You're, you're starting to trust yourself more than me. You think you had something to do with it. You forgot me as your first love or the source of all of it. And so he's inviting us into something different. And so we have to understand the difference of what is tolerance, which I think is actually an unloving gesture. Because if I tolerate your alcoholism and I take you out for a beer, how loving is that? If I tolerate your obesity and we go out for fried chicken, how loving is that? Well, that's just who we are, who you are. Well, no, I want to love you better than that. Even if it interrupts you. This is what God's doing to us. He's saying, I am so in love with you, but I can't tolerate your sin. I can't tolerate your apathy. I can't tolerate your complacency. The building's on fire, and now you feel helpless, and God is brokenhearted because he was trying to throw up warning signs all along. This is what God's doing for us. So what I want to do is just have a time where we go into worship together and, and we um, have a little time of prayer together and we respond together. But let's just uh, close in a word of prayer and then uh, we'll just worship together. Our Father in heaven, I, I would just ask that you would stir in our hearts uh, just a, a, a better picture of what you're inviting us to. I pray that you would share your loving kindness with us and your mercy. I pray that... Um, you would like allow our hearts to be resensitized. I pray that where we've grown complacent or maybe immune, um, that you would just disrupt us in a maybe a, a, a gentle and loving way, but you would call us to yourself. Help us to see that which you see and respond appropriately, but 
capture our imagination right now for the life you're inviting us into, we pray in Jesus' name.